I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, Mary Dillon, CEO of Ulta Beauty, joins us to discuss her journey as a first-generation college graduate, as well as the luck and preparedness which yielded her early achievements. She discusses the challenge of making an iconic American meal healthier, as well as the three lenses of leadership she feels are required to build an exceptional team, functional expertise, enterprise thinking, and collaboration. We hear about her successful run at Ulta Beauty, the future of retail, and more. Hi, Mary. Margaret, how are you? I'm really good. Good to see you. You too. Where are you today? I am in Evanston at my home, in my home office. Uh, I was in it's just nice to be working on a rainy day from home. I was traveling I a little bit and it's actually easier to be here. <laughs> yeah, I know. So we have a lot we're going to talk about. Thank you for being here with us today. And let's just start from the beginning, which is a great place to start. You and I talked a little bit before and we both grew up in blue collar Chicago families, both first generation college graduates. You are the fourth of six siblings, worked your way through college to pay for your state school tuition. So as you reflect back on where you came from, your journey, is there anything that stands out the most? So Margaret, one of the things that I love about you and I is this connection that we have in terms of our families and cultures, I guess, and upbringing. And you know, the, the, as I've gotten older in my life and I've gotten more experience and more perspective, I'd say I'm really proud when I think about what I've been able to achieve and where I've come from. And I would say, as corny as this might sound, I say to people, I really actually feel like I understand now what the American dream is about. Uh You know, to be able to be somebody who had, um, you know, I'm the first generation college person. Uh, My grandparents didn't even probably go to high school, all of them. My parents certainly didn't go to college. So I had to navigate this all myself. And my parents were you know, not able to help me with any of that. They were proud of us and saw us all as, you know, good kids and good students, but go figure it out. So, you know, between student loans and waitressing and many part-time jobs, I was able to get a great education and then work really hard throughout my life to continue to achieve. But, you know, it's not like I knew anybody in business. It's not like I had role models or specific encouragement. And it's really something I, I take that, you know, as a really big responsibility for me at this stage of my life is to understand how to help people because it's not necessarily getting easier, right, to achieve if you come from a background where you maybe don't have the advantages of others. So mostly I'd say it's a feeling of pride. Um, my children are, you know, they understand very well sort of this this journey that we've been on and I've been on, and I think they're proud of it as well. Yeah. I don't know if you experienced any of this, but I experienced this sense of why are you going to college? I mean, it wasn't a discouragement, but it was, we can't help you with this. We don't think you need to do this, but if it's something you want to do, go figure it out, <laughs> which was Yeah. Just- I lived in multiple different worlds through the early part of my life in my twenties and my thirties. You know, I even my husband and I met in college and got married when I was 23 and I'd started my first professional job around the same time. And there people were like, how can you be that young and be engaged? You know, whereas, whereas like in my family, that wasn't all that unusual, right? Why don't so, you have kids yet? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's like these worlds colliding. So you know, I would say, I think my parents understood that going to college was going to be helpful to us. They would, like anybody, feel like we want our kids to, you know, to do better. I mean, I'm kind of amazed how they were able to raise six kids on the salary that my father, you know, 
probably never made more than $40,000 a year, it would be my right. guess at the top. And, you know, he worked in a, a steel factory and he, I remember him going from hourly to quote management. You know, I remember fears about layoffs and all those things and mm-hmm. how my mother was able to scrape it up together. I don't know, but I never felt poor. I just looked back and I realized, wow, we, you know, we didn't have it all that easy. But, you know, we have a great family that has a lot of fun together and cares about each other. And that is to me a great legacy. Yeah. I love to ask people what their first paycheck was, where they had their first job, and what did you learn from it that you still carry with you today? Right. Well, it's so interesting. It's such a great question. And, you know, I literally one day started tabulating in my brain when I started working and how many jobs I've had. So the first job where I had a printed paycheck, my name on it, was when I was 16 years old and I was working at Osco Drugstore, which is a regional drugstore chain here in Chicago. But, you know, before that, I I probably started working like in eighth grade. Um, I started babysitting, right? A lot of Mm -hmm. kids do that. But anything I wanted that was over and above the basics. So if I wanted like cuter clothes or limited, or if I wanted to buy myself a 10 speed bike, I had to make that money. Again, I'm not, I didn't feel sorry for myself. It was just what it was. Right. right. So I did things I could do when you could get a job under 16. So I did babysitting and I did, um, you know, even after I, I even cleaned apartments. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I mean, talk, talk about, and then as I started to be able to get jobs with paychecks, I did everything from you know, Osco drug to waitressing to working at a bank as a bank teller. I was always working and going to school, whether it was high school or college, yeah. right? But the thing I'd say is that it was so cool when I became CEO of Alta Beauty. And I remembered back to my days at Osco drug when I was a part-time, you know, employee, I started out in the candy and tobacco department. Why? Because <laughs> those products came, they came on the same truck. <laughs> they came on the same truck. They came off a of tobacco jobber trucks. Right. Then I got moved into cosmetics. And so I was like, you know, putting things on JPEGs and bringing people yeah. out. And stuff. But I'd say the main thing I took from it is to never lose the humility and the appreciation, frankly, for what the frontline work is like and how much mm-hmm. you can learn. You know, listen, waitressing, I'm not a fun person to go out to dinner with because if you don't tip well, you are off my list. OK, because <laughs> I I mean, I'm just putting that out there. But yeah. but even just my insights about being an hourly worker at a drugstore, having ideas and thoughts, knowing that really nobody cared frankly. Now, as a CEO of this company, you can imagine a lot of what I've tried to do is create an environment where people are, are listened to and respected and heard, because frankly, that's where our best ideas come from day in and day out. I'm sure we can talk more about that, but I yeah. would say what I take from that is just don't lose sight of how hard those jobs are, but also the great insight and pride you can garner by talking to folks who have those jobs. Yeah, so important. And I know that has served you really well as a CEO generally, and especially at Alta, just seeing how you care for your employees. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. So I'll Wait, what was your first that. job? What was your first paycheck with your name on it? My first paycheck, I was 16 and I worked at H&R Block during tax season and I collated and prepped the tax return files for the clients coming in. So like you had to know their situation and which forms they needed and have the folders ready to go so that they'd walk in. Cause it was like a assembly line during tax season. That's cool. Yeah. I learned great organizational skills and uh, the importance of preparation and what can happen when you're not prepared <laughs> and not organized. That's right. Yeah. And I remember one day um, it was snowing really hard and I couldn't drive yet. Oh, I was 15. I couldn't drive yet. So I couldn't drive myself to work. So my dad had to drive me after school and um, I was late. I think I had like volleyball practice or something. And I was so nervous about being late. And it was like the light was turning yellow 
and it was about to turn red. I was like, dad, don't stop. Go through the light, go through the light. And he went through the light. So I was like, this minute is going to save me. It's, you know, my new job. I can't be. He had your back. I like that. I know. And he did. Luckily he did not get a ticket and it maybe wasn't the best choice, but he was looking out for his daughter and I really appreciate it. (laughs) So, you know, there's this saying that I love and I think it's by Louis Pasteur, which is chance or luck favors the prepared mind. And you have had lots of jobs. And I'm wondering, what was your big break? What, did you have a lucky break along the way? Yeah, you know, it's such a great question because I, I, I'm really happy to say that I think it takes a combination of things, right? Preparedness and drive, luck, but putting yourself in a position where things can happen too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so when I was, um, I went to University of Illinois at Chicago and we called it Circle back then. I had a great education. I so I worked full time and went to school full time. And, you know, when I was graduating, you know, I wasn't really, I knew I wanted to be, do something in business. I had taken uh, a class in consumer research and marketing, and I kind of knew I loved that. Um, but I also was just coming out of undergraduate school with a general business degree. And it wasn't the kind of school where a lot of companies were coming from all over the country right? It was, you know, Chicago-based companies recruiting at U of I Chicago. So I got my first, and I had to take whatever, I mean, honestly, I just had to get jobs. I, I, the waitressing and paying my rent that way was not going to last forever, right? So I got a job at what was then Continental Bank, which uh, maybe people don't even know about that anymore. And it was some kind of like a back office sort of IT type job, I don't know, like an analyst job. And with all due respect to Continental Bank and banking and all that stuff, I realized like, okay, this is not like, um, I, this is probably not for me, but it's just like the first job I could get. So I took it. Well, then at the same time, I had a friend who was working at Quaker Oats in brand management. And I just, and, and I, he was an assistant brand manager at the time. And when he would talk about like what they did there, I was like, that sounds exactly like what I want to do, which is kind of running a little business where you're in charge of marketing, but also sales and supply chain and finance, or you're kind of, so everything like collaborative teams, it sounded so interesting to me. I didn't know anything about it, but he was kind enough and I was lucky enough to know him where he got his res- my resume to somebody in HR. And he said, listen, we don't recruit your school. They have a program for people right out of undergraduate school back then. And then a bunch of people out of business school, mostly business school and then a few undergrads. And I clearly didn't go to the school they recruited from, but he said, you know, you never know. I'll get your, your resume. So the fella who was in HR was my lucky break because he had my mm-hmm. resume. And he said, I'm only looking at this because, you know, it was sent to me by Steve. And, and also, but as I look at it, you actually have the kind of background I can see we look for, which is, you know, you've, uh, you know, your academics, your leadership, and somebody gave me the tip to put on my resume that I 100% financed it myself, my education, which I didn't realize that was a big deal. Okay? I didn't know. I, I thought everybody did. Yeah. So he looks at this and he's like, wow, okay. So he brings me in through all the interviews and I get hired and I'll never forget like how proud my dad was because my initial starting salary was, you know, pretty strong for 1983, given, you know, where I was coming out of undergraduate school. And, um, and also when I, after a while, after I was there, I realized I was the first person they ever hired that wasn't coming from an Ivy League undergrad school. Mm-hmm. Now they, you know, they're only hiring five people a year in this undergrad training program. So I can see why they were going to Princeton and Yale and Harvard. So I can understand that, but the being lucky enough to be able to put myself in that position, I asked for it. I didn't just right. fall out of the heavens. I said, can you help me get my resume to somebody? I worked, sold myself hard in the in- interviews and, you know, it was, that was, I will tell you, I think that was my biggest break for sure. Because after that, I was able to just capitalize and leverage every opportunity and work really hard along the way as well. So for what that's worth, I consider that the biggest starting break. Yeah. 
And, you know, there's no way to know, like the movie Sliding Doors, but I would put my money on, you probably would have still had a very successful career without that initial one. It may not have looked the same, but who knows? And what a loss of talent that would have been if they overlooked somebody because it wasn't the traditional you know, candidate and yeah, well, no, it is. And again, a lesson I take from that is I try really hard in our hiring or to coach others to say, keep your aperture really wide to create, not just to give people opportunities, Mm -hmm. but to look for opportunities. Yeah. I'm sure I would have had a great career, but honestly, I I think, you know, I, it might not, I mean, maybe I would have worked for a while in one field and then gotten back and gotten an MBA and then gotten into consumer packaged goods. It just would have taken different shapes and forms. Right. But, but, you know, Margaret, it's funny because I could tell once I got that job, then of course, then you have to go there and do it. And you have to, in your head, you know, it took me months before I realized that I was the first person they ever hired that didn't go to an Ivy school. I didn't know that at the beginning. Right. They didn't say that. And so people would be like, oh, you're a new marketing associate. Where'd you go to school? Expecting me to say Harvard, Princeton, Yale. And I, I'd say University of Illinois at Chicago. And people would like skip a beat and they go, oh, U of I, sure, I've heard, or U of C, sure, yeah. I've heard of that. Right. So because most people work from Chicago, they, and there's a paradigm, right? So then after I started to realize like, oh my gosh, the people on my team that I'm working with are like, this person has a Harvard MBA, this person has a Kellogg MBA, and this person's from Princeton. You can get in your head and just be yeah. like, you know, wow, am I going to mm-hmm. fit in? Am I going to be successful? The good thing is I didn't realize that for a while. So I just went in there, you know, to work as hard as I could, learn as hard as I could. And then once I started to figure those things out, I had to go through many cycles of just building my own confidence. You know what I mean? Right. And not letting that distract me. So yeah, that's really good. I guess the only last thing I'll just say on that is that I realized as I continue to progress that I would, and I'm a driven, competitive person. I started to look around, realizing I'm doing as well as yeah. as many and better than some. And as I got to a certain level where it was the winnowing out, you know, to go from a marketing associate to assistant brand manager to brand manager. Once I hit that brand manager level, I kind of realized, okay, I'm meant to do this as well as anybody else. I'm I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, you know, yeah, like yeah. I used to say to Stuart Smalley. And part of I believe part of what made me be successful at that very beginning was that I treated the people that I worked with on these cross-functional teams with deep respect. Like I have something yeah. to learn from the person who works in the manufacturing facility. I have somebody, I have things to learn from somebody whose job is sales. I didn't come in with the, I've got all the answers, which unfortunately sometimes people do. Yeah. And so I, I attribute that to my upbringing in the sense that I did have, you know, the sense of humility because it was real. Yeah. You know, and I'm wondering too, if it's something about the Quaker culture, because of all the people I know who went through there, they talk about it with a level of affection that you don't always hear. Yeah. Don't hear very often at all, actually, about, you know, a corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious about your experience with that. Yeah. I'd say there's two things that stand out to me. One is that, um, well, first of all, you know, if you love consumer insights driven approaches to create business, right? I call it the consumer demand engine. You know, consumer packaged goods companies are a great way to learn about how to how to do that. And I'd say Quaker was expert at that. They also were really great at helping teach people how to lead and create how to create and lead high performing teams mm-hmm. and through the lens of collaboration across functions. And to me, that was pretty special. And I've leveraged that throughout my entire career, like to this day. The third piece, again, it didn't hit me until many years later, is that I'd say diversity and inclusion was a value of the company even back when I started there in the 19, early 1980s. In fact, I ran into Bill Smithberg at a, at a, a United Red Car- or United Club several years ago, who was the CEO at the time, and I haven't seen him in years. And 
he was so kind. He said, I've been tracking your career. I'm really proud of you. I said, I just want to tell you, as I've gotten older, I realized how rare it was. There were so many senior women at the company. Oh. When I started there in 1984, there was a woman named Barb Allen who was the president of a division, right? My boss, Polly Kowalik, you know, almost every boss I had, Margaret Stender, were women. And I said, you know, I didn't realize how rare that was until I left Quaker and went into other industries and companies later in my career. But I had a good solid 15 years formative where I saw no barrier. I saw no gender barriers right. at all, at all. So he was very pleased to hear that. <laughs> and how important is that? And again, just thinking about our dramatic increased awareness of this mm-hmm. now. I mean, I think to varying degrees, it's it's been bubbling up and some leaders have been aware of it to greater or lesser degrees, but you knew that so early on. And I think that you've lived that as a leader everywhere that you've gone. And then particularly how you lead at Ulta as well, that you need to well, see it I, to be it. Yeah, you do. But then I also had a dose of reality when I left Quaker and when I went to McDonald's and then to US Cellular, great companies. But all of a sudden I realized that that was a rare yeah. place that women, so many women were in such a you know high, you didn't have to think about the glass ceiling. And then I had to relearn that, frankly. I had to open my eyes and see. And there were times that I felt, you know, uh, too left out of things. There were times mm-hmm. that I had to fight really hard to have my voice heard. And frankly, that has been super valuable to me as well. So at this stage of my life and career, frankly, I don't feel like this is over, whether it's women or any underrepresented group. You know, I can understand what it still feels like today to be in a room and not be heard or seen. Yeah. And um, and I am really committed to making sure that I don't assume this has been fixed because we know it hasn't. Right. And that I can be a voice of empathy and more importantly, a voice of action. Right. So you had this amazing supportive culture at the beginning of your career and then also just excellence as a practitioner and teaching you, you know, how to be the best brand manager possible. And then Quaker gets acquired by PepsiCo. And so now you get this second amazing opportunity to learn how to lead and operate within a very large, like global fortune 500 company structure. Yeah. So what was, was there a big challenge in making that switch? Was it jarring at all? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I'd say that there was, I was probably one of the very few senior Quaker people that kind of made that transition successfully, both because I wanted to. Some people just didn't necessarily want to go from Quaker to Pepsi. They did other things or maybe they Mm -hmm. retired. And some did want to make the transition. But I think you had to be somebody that was willing and able to take, this is the way I would say it. I took the best of what I learned from Quaker and I could see what I thought was the best of PepsiCo that was different yeah. from Quaker. And how do I put those two things together and learn and be a strong leader? So Quaker was very much about, as I mentioned, consumer insight, a very culture-driven company. PepsiCo was, I think, much sharper on the competitive, you know, like how do we think about market share? How do we think about competition? How do we think about the grocery customer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a different kind of thing. And I was able to bring the two together. I'll tell you, one of the, the jobs that I had is that I was running the Quaker oatmeal business. And after, Quake, after we were acquired by PepsiCo, there was a keen interest. That I was actually running all of Quaker Foods. But there was a keen interest at PepsiCo to get into. They bought us, I think, first and foremost for Gatorade. We're a beverage company, beverage company, and Gatorade's a great right. business. But also realized that the food brand and portfolio of foods is really powerful and really very much in the health and wellness area that PepsiCo was interested in. And so that's great. You know, Pepsi also had free, has Frito-Lay, right, division. So I, mm-hmm. I kind of started to realize that there was a lot of different divisions of PepsiCo that was kind of, that were tinker, tinkering around with using the Quaker equity 
in new mm. products that they wanted to launch, right? So like Quaker snack this and Quaker this, Quaker beverages. And I remember feeling like, okay, that is fine. I didn't have control over all that, but I started to get very worried because I know from my lens about how you manage and grow consumer equities and consumer brands, that there was a lot of risk to this. That if we didn't put some guardrails around how we think about, you know, where we can and can't play, um, it could become, it could really hurt the mothership business. And so one of the things that I did was after I built some credibility at PepsiCo, I think in terms of successfully running the business and, you know, understanding how to operate in that environment, I then took a, a, a really big stand in terms of going to the CEO and saying, listen, I think I, I'm going to tell you right now, I think we need to control this. I'd mm -hmm. like to be a part. I'd like to lead this to put some equity guardrails around the company, around what products and brands can use as equity. And that was, you know, kind of a big step because I'm there. I'm up again. I'm a VP of marketing, and there's division, you know, heads of all these other divisions that you know I don't report to them, and they don't report to me. But I was able to have enough credibility to build a case and successfully, you know, garner that authority, I guess, within the company to make sure that we had a a way to control the use of the Quaker, you know, I wanted to both leverage it, but also control it. So, you know, I think that was kind of my crowning success at, at PepsiCo yeah. to be able to build that kind of credibility there and, and even shape the way they thought about, you know, new products, I guess. Yeah. Right. And in such a large organization, it's easy for people to get lost. And if they aren't able to cultivate that ability to influence, you know, that you are able yeah. to do. And so clearly you're a powerful influencer and you went to your next big job, which is global chief marketing officer for McDonald's, which is just a very big job and influential job. So how were you able to influence there? Is there any area of influence that you're most proud of? Yeah, it's, it was a really um, big change in my life when I made that decision. And, and first of all, the reason I made the decision is back to the family thing we started at the beginning. You know, I've grown up in Chicago. My husband and I have four children. We have lots of nieces and nephews. Kids have lots of cousins. And I kind of have enjoyed like, building my career and staying in one city for the mm -hmm. most part. Chicago's a great city where there's a lot of companies right here and whatnot. So, but I also was really driven and ambitious about my career and knew that I wanted to keep growing. And at PepsiCo to grow to another, you know, whether I want a global influence or a bigger division, I'd have to move the family, right? Oh, so uh -huh. I just decided that, you know, when I saw this opportunity at, at McDonald's, that it would give me a great platform to learn how to like run a global business from a marketing perspective and frankly to keep my family here in Chicago. So, I mean, that right. was kind of like why partly you practically, sometimes you make those choices. Right. Um, but it was one of the hardest transitions I've ever made in my career. You would think like you go in with a title, like global chief marketing officer, like la-di-da, I have all this power uh -huh. on the planet, right? Well, anybody who's worked in a global company, as well as companies that have both lines of division or, you know, where the P&Ls are managed, whether it's countrywide or whatever, and then functional centers in the center of the business. I had never really worked that way before. I always had a PL and I was mm -hmm. in charge of, you know, delivering the profit and the sales and, you know, controlled a good to a good degree our destiny. When you're Not to mention the franchise model. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. So it. when you're right, when you're running a, a function of a company that also has franchise, it's very different. So I had to kind of realize, number one, back to your point about influence, like I realized this was much more of an influence management role than anything else. And I had mm -hmm. to learn that pretty quickly. And I also kind of had to get used to not running a PL, but running a function. And I had to figure out ways to build credibility and to build, you know, followership. And it was hard. It was really one of the hardest things I've ever done. The first year or so, I kind of thought, okay, I'm a, 
I'm failing here. I'm never going to be successful. I mean, I just, I was hard because coming in, you know, McDonald's is a great company, but a lot of companies that have been around for a long time with success, you come in from the outside at a high level, people, you know, not everybody wants you to succeed. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think, you think it's, you know, you waltz in. No, it's not that way. So you have to, I think for anybody, you have to build credibility, learn the business. And I also learned that influencing decisions was really different, you know? So like, for example, PepsiCo, if I'm presenting to, you know, Steve Reineman or Indra Nui, you know, our strategic plan or our new products plan or whatever, everything you did was very analytical and buttoned up and almost consultant-like. And at McDonald's, you know, if I came in, waltzed into a presentation of the CEO like that, it would be looked at like, wait a second, you're just a consultant. You know, you're not, that's not the way you haven't really, you don't understand the folklore and the history. And so I kind of realized that I had to find new ways to to convince and and, and to influence. Because one of the things that I I focused on at the beginning was, there's several things. One is the global brand equity, you know, et cetera. But the the fact that the Happy Meal is a global iconic product for McDonald's, everybody knows that. It was also at a time when health and wellness, especially for children, childhood obesity, marketing to children, all were becoming hot topics. And I thought there was this great, and there is, there was great opportunity. Okay, how can we have our cake and eat it too? No pun intended. But many people love McDonald's or they like it because it's convenient. It's a great value, but they have ambivalent feelings about it because they're not sure that they feel mm-hmm. good about bringing their kids there. Kids love McDonald's, you know, hands down. Any kid who can have McDonald's will want it. We know that. So I felt like, you know, I think there's an opportunity for us to, if we made the Happy Meal more healthful nutritionally, still tastes great, but more healthful. If we, you know, kind of modernize our marketing practices to kids, there's a whole chunk of business out there for moms or dads who would love nothing more than to not feel guilty about stopping at McDonald's and just getting themselves a salad, but getting the kids to have the meal, right? Right. It seemed kind of logical. Um, then in fact, I set up a couple of in-market tests and different things to kind of, or concept tests to kind of prove out the theory of, you know, if we change this, the, the beverage from soda to milk or water, if we reduce the sodium and the fries, if we added fruit to every Happy Meal, right? Look at the upside. Mm-hmm. When I went in with that business case, it was like, nobody bought it. Okay. Because it was like, not that we don't want to look out for kids, but you don't understand the history. Everybody wants to take pot shots at us. And, you know, we can't change these things because people won't taste as good or, or it's just, you know, so I kind of stepped back and said, what are, is there some other ways that I can figure out how to get this done? And part of it was frankly, the women owner operators in the U S have their own group, you know, like there are many groups of owner operators. And the leader of that group was actually quite supportive of this idea. And she said, Mary, we see this all the time. We see moms coming here reluctantly, you know, not, you know, people, we think that there's an opportunity here for kids to feel better and people would come off. And so with their support, it was more of a less of a business case, theoretical, conceptual, more like, hey, let's try it in these markets, or here's the support of these owner operators. Anyways, end of the day, after I was there for five years, we finally announced globally fruit in every happy meal, you know, a healthier happy meal. And it took a long time to get there, but I was really proud of that accomplishment. And it, it just really taught me patience, different ways to influence and get things done than I had been conditioned. And I'm glad I did that. So while it was hard, I had a new set of tools in my toolkit. Right. 
So now as a mom of young kids, I want to thank you for that because I was not the target market at the time. So I missed it. I know. And I now have six-year-old twin boys and I've been trying to hold off on McDonald's for so long because I knew once I opened Pandora's box, there was no going out, going back. Mm -hmm. So I've just been avoiding, avoiding. And then they came home from school a couple months ago, started talking about McDonald's. And I'm like, Where'd you hear about McDonald's? Oh, you know, so and so in class. And Mrs. Like, Dylan taught you about this? No. <laughs> I know. So on their six-year checkup at the pediatrician, there's a McDonald's next door. I was like, okay, I'm gonna take them. And we went. And it was great because the Happy Meal had the cutest little box of fries and then yes. also apples. So you could get two fries if you want. So if you it was like this win-win. If you want all the fries, you can have it. And if you want fries and apples, you can have that. And and what it. was the beverage, like default beverage, if you milk. order the Happy Meal? Yeah. yeah, I was able to get milk. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, you know, this we're talking 2005, I started to work on that. It's 2021. Yeah. The hands of time move slowly. But honestly, I'm so happy yeah. to hear that story. <laughs> You're welcome. That makes me happy. Did you get anything to eat for yourself? A um, salad, of anything? Of course. Quarter pounder cheese. I mean, that's, oh. you know. Okay. Way to go. The best sandwich. Yes, it is. I know. And I hadn't been in like 10 years, so mm-hmm. I had no guilt. And then it's my husband texted me like, can you bring me home a Big Mac and a quarter pounder of cheese? I'm like, yeah, sure. I love it. <laughs> New converts. I know. Well, because he was so curious too, as someone who hadn't had it for a while, like, I don't mm-hmm. know, is it still going to be good? I'm not sure. I don't want to get just one and then be disappointed. So bring home two. And his assessment was they were both pretty good. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so um, then in 2010, you assumed the post as president and CEO of U.S. Cellular, another huge job. So I'm curious, is that something you were aspiring to at the time? Was there a point at which you said, I really want to be a CEO or was this more opportunistic? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know that there was ever one moment in time where I was like, oh, I want to be a CEO. But here's what happened. I realized over the course of my career that I was, I'm using the words driven ambitious a lot for a reason. These are, these are words that are used as weapons against women yep. sometimes, yep. and I'm here to change that. So I think that's BS. That's another yep. topic we can go into longer. But to me, I realize that I am driven and I am ambitious and mm-hmm. I'm really hardworking yeah. and I really care about people and I care about results. And I also realize that, like, that in some ways, I don't know how high is up when you come from a world where you know, my father worked in a factory. I also realized that if the only person, you know, that, that I, and my husband stayed home with our kids after we both worked at the beginning, you know, so it was kind of like my career. So I was always, you know, really like content doing what I was doing and delivering, but also thinking about what could come next. So, you know, over time I began to, you know, see, well, if I could do this job and then I said, well, maybe I could do this job, right? Maybe mm-hmm. I could do this job. When I was at McDonald's then, for five years running a global marketing function, I really missed running the PL. I missed running mm-hmm. the business, like the full, the full line of business. Um, I would have liked to have done that at McDonald's. That wasn't really in the cards for somebody yeah. like me who came from the outside, um, which is fine. I decided to be the best chief marketing officer I could possibly be. But I was starting to get anxious to say, okay, I feel like I need to go back and run a business because if I don't do it soon, it might not ever be an opportunity for me again. That's, you know, I was a little worried right. about that the longer I was away from that. So frankly, I was kind of open to running a division of a big company or running a company. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, being like when I ran the Quaker Foods division, PepsiCo, it is kind of like a mini CEO job. A right. bit. I mean, you don't have right. the investor stuff, but it's sort of like that. So, so I just, you know, um, it's good to stay networked and connected. And I had a friend who was in the business. And when you're a CMO, I joke about this, like five years is a long time. As a CMO. 
So oh, really? there's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of people recruiting CMOs to go other places. And so if I had any recruiters ever call me, I said, you know, I don't, I'm not going to leave here to be a CMO anywhere else. But right. I would, I am interested in running a line of business at some point. So a friend of mine had the search for U.S. Cellular, and he said, this is kind of my theme is I've never really been on the spec for any job that I was hired for. Because uh-huh. he was like, you know, you're not really on the spec. But I actually think, you know, you, you could bring, because they're very focused, a wonderful company, very focused on, on, on customer service and differentiating through a better customer service and better cellular service experience, but competing against the likes of the big, you know, AT&Ts and Verizons and whatnot. It's more of a regional player. But they had a keen focus on that. And, and he felt like there might be a fit between my consumer marketing background with what they might be interested in, you know, as a leader there. And so I felt very fortunate that Ted Carlson, who is the CEO of the company, uh, of the parent company, you know, chose me and trusted me to become, to come on and be the CEO of the company. Um, so it was another, I guess, big break in a lot of ways. Um, it was putting trust in me as a, as a person who understands how to run a P&L, but also how to build culture and how to build customer experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love that, that again, you were not on the spec and what they would have missed, you know, if they missed you. I have a friend who works in search and she talks about how frustrating it is that, you know, they get these searches and they want to be really creative and expansive about it. And they're like, no, we want someone who basically did this exact job for an exact competitor for this many yeah. years. And she's like, well, you're missing, you know, all these potential yeah. people well, are just reproducing. Happened- it's the same thing for Alta Beauty, the exact, exact same thing. So, you know, when they were looking for a new CEO, the spec was to have somebody who'd done retail, been a retail CEO for, you know, a number of years or COO. Right. And that wasn't really my background. So, again, right. I think sometimes between the search leader and the board, you know, there sometimes has to be some openness to kind of play this a little bit differently and see what other kind of talents out there. Yeah. And at the time, I think CMO to CEO was not a very common path. I think it's changing. We're seeing more of those, but yeah. you know, uniquely, where is a CMO qualified to take that CEO role and any yeah. advice or guidance you have for, you know, the aspiring VPs of marketing and CMOs right th- out there now who want to make it to the CEO. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say exclusively it has to work this way, but I think it's helpful. If you're a marketing person, who has experience with, a, you know, running a PL? I think that's different than a marketing person who's never had a PL. They've had a marketing mm-hmm. budget, you know what I mean? Because right. I could understand and talk about the role of the total business, you know, driving sales, which marketing is a big part of, but managing costs and people and supply chains and sales forces and whatnot, right? So, Having done that, maybe at a a smaller degree when you're not a CEO, but having done it as a general manager, I think that then prepares you to continue to be a general manager with the marketing part being, to me, I just call it the demand engine. That's the simplest way I can put Mm -hmm. it now because, you know, I don't think of marketing as just like advertising or PR or social media. It's really about how do you think through customer insight or consumer insight through the tactics and competitive environment, how do you differentiate? How do you use a tactic to stimulate demand? How do you continue to make sure you're getting a good return on that kind mm-hmm. of investment? And so any business, you know, I think having an expert at driving the demand yep. engine is obviously very helpful. And if you can have that plus somebody who can lead people and create culture and also mm-hmm. lead a PL. So so I do think for marketing folks, some have and some don't have PL experience. And I don't, I don't think it's a complete non-starter as a CEO, but I would say to people, try to broaden your experience base, even in the company that you're in, to have yeah. 
some parts of your job be more PL like than not. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shore microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shore lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So let's talk about Ulta Beauty. Your current role, the one for which you are probably best known. You've been such an iconic and powerful CEO for the brand. A few highlights. Under your leadership, it's tripled its market cap to over $18 billion, doubled the number of retail stores, and delivered shareholder returns of 245%. Not bad. You did a lot in your tenure there. As you reflect back, Are there one or maybe two critical decisions that you made as CEO that helped champion this great success of your tenure there? Well, thank you for that lead up. I appreciate (laughs) that. It certainly has been truly the highlight and honor of my career to lead Alta Beauty. When I was approached about running the company, frankly, I barely knew anything about it. And I spent a lot of time explaining to people, it's not ultra, it's ultra, yeah, right. ultra beauty. You know, that's a bit low brand awareness. and low. I mean, I, I recognize that there was a big opportunity here, but it's also not undaunting, right? Again, not having been a retail expert my whole career. What I'd say in terms of maybe the couple of things that I, I leaned on, you know, it helps that I've done different things and had different at-bats. And so I kind of was more clear-eyed about two things. One is that the leadership and the culture. And that sounds like maybe everybody would say that, but actually it's proven to be right. My instincts were right, Mm -hmm. which is that I could sense, we'll start with the culture. I could sense at the beginning, um, just even walking through the hallways, a sense of kind of like hierarchy, intimidation, almost fear. Like, Like people wouldn't even really look me in the eye or it was like a very like it would just surprise me. I thought, what's you know, the company's performing well, but people don't seem at ease. They don't seem to feel, you know, comfortable in their own skin. And I realized it's just like the culture had never really been built there. I guess is the best way mm. to say. And and what I I believe, I mean, there's a lot of good, great things about the company, but you know, it to me the notion of when I go back to who I am as a person, which is that I truly believe that everybody has something to contribute and needs to be respected and heard. The minute we started operating that way that the people that I modeled and the people that worked for me and the people that worked for them, you know, would create an environment where there was transparency, where people felt respected and heard, um, whether it's people out in the field and the in distribution centers and our corporate power center, um, things started to really change. And it wasn't like um, we could do everything everybody wanted, but just the notion of feeling heard. It was, so example, instead of going out to the marketplace and visiting stores, a lot of CEOs might be like, well, I'm going to go to this store, this store, and this store, and we're going to inspect. You know, maybe you don't use the word inspect, but it's clearly like, you know, you're mm-hmm. looking for the out of stocks and is this clean or is this right? And mm-hmm. it's like, I make an early decision like that's I'm not doing that because first of all, that's not, there's other people who know how to do that better than me. And also, you know, people can make things look good for a day. It does because they know the CEO is coming in, right? I care about just building culture. So 
we would go instead of we'd visit walk around the store, but then we'd go to the, I always would go to the back room and we'd have with my store leaders, we'd bring together as many general managers from the areas could make sense, you know, maybe a two hour drive. So we could have from ten to thirty or forty people in the back room and literally just have an open forum. What what's working well, what's not, what suggestions do you have? And if we took one or two even of those things and brought them back and did them. And we did that often. Like somebody would have a very good idea that we'd implement everywhere. And then we'd make sure people knew we were doing that through our internal communications. It just started to create a snowball effect of, wow, mm-hmm. you know, we can't get everything you wanted every day, but sometimes we're really making a difference here. Those of us who are leading in the stores and the, the culture and the values, I think really have helped us at a time that's been very tough in the last year, right? With the pandemic. Right. So one is culture and related to this is just this, the team. And, you know, I know that I do my best work when I have a team of people that work for me or I'm on a team that have three things. I literally wrote it down one day on a piece of paper because I was like, why haven't I written this down? Because this is what I'm looking for. I did this at the beginning of the tenure. Three lenses, functional expertise, enterprise thinking, collaboration. And so as a CEO, if I can have all the people that report to me directly have those three things in equal measure, mm-hmm. I am sure will be successful. And why is that? Well, functional expertise like I don't have functional expertise in everything, so I need to make sure that the CFO and the head of supply chain and stores are experts at their function. However, that's not enough because I learned from my early days working in, with leading cross-functional, high-performing teams that if you don't have leaders who also can think through the lens of the enterprise, mm-hmm. you're probably never going to get to optimal solutions on anything, right? So right. what might be optimal for a supply chain solution might not be optimal for how the stores have to unpack the, the trucks coming in. What might be optimal spending from a marketing perspective might not be optimal for what the PL. So functional expertise with the ability to think through an enterprise lens and collaboration, like you can't bring those together without collaboration. Like you can't you can't get to the best solutions without these people being able to work together through a collaborative lens. So kind of one by one, I assess my senior team and some some still are on it. Some are many new, some that I brought in that I worked before, others that I didn't. All I can say is that I think that it's a, right now we have a world-class team. And that's why this succession has been seamless because I've been building and working with this world-class team mm-hmm. for seven or eight years. And they know the business inside now. They're great functional experts, enterprise thinkers, collaborators. So point being, as a long-winded answer, everybody says that you got to get the team in place. And if you wait too long, it's a mistake. And I'm here to tell you, yes, this time I did not wait too long. It did, I didn't do it overnight, yeah. but within 18 months, we were there and it was the smartest thing I could have done. Yeah. So enter this past year, you were at the center of probably every single challenge that rose up during this past year. The pandemic and the corresponding shutdown, you had to navigate a series of retail store closings and reopenings across the country. So every market had different, you know, restrictions and guidelines and things going on. I know that many of your stores were also hit during the protests. So Mm -hmm. as an outsider, I might assume that this might've been your greatest test as a leader, but maybe not. So I'm curious what has been your greatest challenge. Yes. Well, I would say, yes, the 2020 <laughs> was my greatest test as a leader, for sure. And yet, I'm really proud. I mean, this is where the engine that we have built has really come, has been at its most maximum efficiency. We've got leaders who are so engaged in the business and so expert in the business and care about the enterprise and care about each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've got a culture of listening and respecting and being transparent. Okay. How did that play out? Well, You're right. I mean, it was a series of decisions, one after another, that I will never forget, including making a decision one night, you know, at my kitchen table about 
we need to shut all the stores down and we need to do yeah. immediately, right? How do you do that? Um, we had to furlough 30,000 people. Wow. You know, we had several things, but what happened was, you know, first of all, I'd say we're coming out of this quite well. I mean, of course, oh, yeah. of course we lost a year, you know, we lost sales and, you know, they'll, they're coming back, but I would say we're coming out, you know, stronger and sharper than ever. But the way that I was able to survive this and we were is that I've got these, this team of leaders who have built a team of leaders and so on that really just came together and worked exceptionally well together because we had the trust of each other. We knew um, each one was a functional expert. And when it was time for our head of stores to say, here's how we're going to do this. We're shutting down these stores. We can't have people work. And here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to reopen. We trusted, you know, everybody trusted each other to get that done and get that done right. And so I would say that, you know, I'm so proud of how our distribution centers, they stayed open the whole time and they had increased demand, like 2X the demand overnight. And yet our, our DCs didn't disappoint our guests, right? The leaders of those buildings had to figure out how we're going to bring people to work safely, socially distanced, but still hit very large demand requirements. The store teams, you know, had to bring guests back in and, and associates back in safely. Um, so I'm really proud. And I think it was, you know, the fact that I felt confident that we had the right people with all the right intentions. And then the only other thing I'd say is that when George Floyd was murdered, I'll never forget reading that on Memorial Day weekend last year and seeing the video. And we had a town hall meeting that we have after every, every um, quarter of earnings. And as we were putting together the slides for the town hall, I said to my team, I want to put in a slide about George Floyd. It had just happened. And nobody was talking about it yet in terms of it being a big, you know, reckoning or re a reckoning around the country. But I, I honestly felt like my instincts were that not only did I think it was going to become that, but that our employees would really care. And so I put in a slide to just talk a little bit about this. I had his name and just talk about what happened and kind of it and sort of our mm -hmm. how we think about our response. It was point is during that day of that town hall, I've never had more emails or, or direct messages from employees, especially black employees saying, thank you. Thank you for saying his name. Thank you for recognizing like, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we have to be part of the solution. And so, you know, I, I think the legacy of George Floyd and, you know, is is just that, which is it's not new that it happened. It's not over, but it got all everybody in corporate America, I think, feeling like we can and should talk about this more and really figure out what does it mean. And obviously, there's been many chapters since then. Um, but to your point, those are some of the, the moments that I'll never forget that were super challenging. And yet I feel prideful about how we emerged. Yeah. And your empathy and care for your employees is so obvious through all of this, but you, it was more than that. You also walked the walk. It wasn't just lip service. So you may not want to talk about this, but I'll talk about it for you that you also made the decision to forego your salary. And you mm -hmm. also made a $500,000 donation to the company's charitable fund to help support Ulta Beauty employees. Yeah. Well, thank you for mentioning that because you're right. It's not something I went out and did a press release about. In fact, right. very few people know that. So thank you. But what <laughs> I'd say is that it was just like, again, how do I say this? I mean, I don't mean to overplay my hand, but I know what it felt like when I was worried that my father was going to lose his job or right. be laid off. You know, I know what it's like for people to try to, you know, get by a paycheck to paycheck. And I was really, and I knew that, you know, at that point we hadn't, load any of our associates, but I knew certainly people in their, li their lives were going to be affected. Once we understood the, the CARE Act and kind of the incremental unemployment benefits that people would get, and our stores, we realized we're going to have to be closed for some number of weeks, 
we made the decisions also furlough many of our associates. And, you know, it was just a small thing that I thought I could do to help people who basically you could just apply and get cash as you needed it. So, you know, we had other sources of, of funding for that, um, but I kind of felt like it was the least I could do, even though certainly it's not like we caused this problem and we're doing everything we can, but it was just a small, it felt important to me personally to do more. Yeah. And then just your care for the people on the front lines, and this may go back to your experiences, you know, way back when at OSCO, but I see it, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn and there's rank and file employees who are just work in your stores and they'll post things and you like and comment on yeah. so many of their posts on LinkedIn. I don't know that every CEO of a company like yours would do that. You know, they may be more focused on the leadership team or the management team and that you seem just really well connected. I know you can't personally know all of them. But that you just yeah. try to create this. Well, and that's the thing. I want people to feel like they do personally know me and yeah. and our leadership team. And you know, listen. I mean, I've got four young adult children, and many of the people in our stores are quite young. Mm-hmm. And um, I, how do I say this? I have learned more from talking to the folks in our stores than probably anywhere. I mean, it's a very diverse diverse racially, diverse in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation. And I have had so many employees say to me, like, I feel like I found my family here. You know, in some instances, people who, you know, I'll never forget meeting a young man who had, I think, it was, we were in Minnesota, I think, and he had left home because he was transgender and his family made him leave. And he came to live with an aunt. He got a job at Ulta and he said, this is the first place I've ever been seen and respected. And that kind of stuff is so, I mean, if we can play a role in that way and sort of helping people, to me, that's what it's all about. And so to me, it's genuine, like it's fun for me to be hanging out with folks in our stores and for them to feel like we care. And it also builds, I mean, the feedback that I get from people shopping in our stores that, you know, quantitatively we get, as well as just anecdotally is this feeling of inclusiveness. You know, I think you right. come into an Ulta Beauty store and you can be yourself. You don't have to come in looking fancy. You can mm-hmm. ask for help and our associates love that. And to me, that is part of our secret sauce. And that's what's helping us, you know, drive market share gains and be successful is that, you know, our associates truly feel valued and that that gets projected out to the guest experience. Yeah. So during this time, you not only had this amazing focus on keeping your employees and customers safe, you were also strategically growing the business at the same time. So you recently announced the opening of your mini cosmetic shops inside of Target stores, which I know people are so excited about because these are two like really beloved retailers, bringing them together. It's like a Reese's peanut butter cup, right? (laughs) Um, I'm feeling that. (laughs) Two great tastes that taste great together. and so you have this launch plan for a hundred 1,000 square foot mini shops inside Target stores. So talk to us a little bit about this decision to join forces. Was this pre-COVID? Was it in response to COVID? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the COVID situation accelerated probably a lot of things that were already happening in retail and in business, certainly the role of e-commerce or the pace of change and competitive environment changing. So I like, to, I like to think that we're agile and we're strategic and we're always thinking through next layers of strategy. But then during this COVID situation, I think we just had to say, okay, how do we look around corners faster and anticipate changes? So for us, it was like, okay, we know that the competitive environment is going to change. Department stores, for example, a, a quicker deceleration of their ability to compete, we think, um, that started to happen, as well as other possible permutations and combinations. So it's like we also know that our guests, when they become an omnichannel guest, so anytime somebody starts in our stores and then starts buying online or starts in our stores and starts using our services, 
the more engaged they get, the more they become really loyal, strong, ultra beauty customers. And so we thought, you know, this is an interesting time for us. Just the cards are all up in the air. Let's figure out something new that we can do that's both offensive and defensive, I guess mm-hmm. is what I would say. So, you know, for us to combine with Target, Target's an unbelievable retailer. Brian Cornell's a good friend. And I know the culture, I used to be on their board for several years. The cultures of our companies are very simpatico. Yeah. And so, uh, but we also know for our guests, you know, there's like 30 million people a week that go through Target. And, and, and there's many people at Target looking for an experience like Ulta who maybe don't shop at an Ulta. Most of our guests probably do shop at Target at some, sometimes, but they're buying other categories. So the notion of bringing prestige brands to that experience to us yeah. is just a great win-win for everybody, for the prestige category, for the Target shopper, and for the Ulta. The way it benefits us is that the Ulta shopper gets a, the Target shopper gets a mini Ulta beauty experience. Right. We get cheap, they get to get their loyalty points. You know, they can uh, buy, get more loyalty points there and redeem them back at Ulta Beauty for a full Ulta experience. It's like, listen, there's a lot of targets that are close to Ultas. And so our mm-hmm. job is to make sure that we build them out as incrementally as we can, as physically separated. But even, you know, even so, just making sure that experience is such that, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to continue to grow the on the channel share wallet of our guests, which we, which we know well. So we're excited. It's coming together. It's going to be a beautiful new experience for everybody who shops at one of them. So I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay. I know we have a few minutes left. I want to wrap with some rapid fire rounds. Is that okay with you? Okay. I love okay. it. Are you ready? Game show time. Okay. The bravest thing you've ever done? Uh, jumped out of an airplane when I was 22. Your with, best wasn't, life. It wasn't, it wasn't a dual, you know, a tandem. It was just oh, it wasn't a, a tandem? Line. No, no. Just me and a Oh my line. gosh. So, yes. I wouldn't recommend it, but it was good. It's fun. I did it once tandem and I was terrified. Yeah. Amazing. Your best life hack? To be curious. So whether it's me telling my kids, if you're in a situation, you don't know what to say to somebody, just ask them questions about themselves. Whether you're in business and you want to show that you're paying attention and you're, you know, ask questions and just in your life, you know, I'm a, I'm a continuous adult learner. I'm, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction. I started taking piano lessons five years ago. I started taking horse. I'm curious about learning things that I didn't. So I'm just like, just be curious and ask yeah. questions. That's great. That's a life hack. It really is. If you're stuck and don't know what to say, just ask someone a question about themselves. Everyone loves talking about themselves, Everybody right? Everybody loves <laughs> talking about wrong. themselves. That's exactly right. One thing not everyone knows about you. Um, well, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I kind of alluded to this, but that I have a lot of love for song and dance, okay? So a lot of people know I love to sing. I'm working on TikTok. I haven't gotten one of my kids to do a TikTok with me yet. <laughs> but if I could have done anything else in life, it'd probably be like, you know, a professional singer-dancer. Uh, but what I did do is start to kind of, and I used to play guitar when I was a kid. So I started taking piano mm-hmm. lessons. Uh, several years ago, just to kind of keep building on my musical theater future career. What keeps you up at night? Not much. I really, I'm pretty good about, you know, just managing my stress. I think at this stage, at this stage of my life, it's maybe kind of wondering what the next chapter is going to be. And I have so many great ways to think about that. Um, That keeps me up a little bit, but that's it. Yeah. So most of our listeners probably have heard the news. You alluded to your next chapter that you will be stepping down as CEO later this year. How did you know it was the right time? 
Well, listen, I've been, I love, uh, I love Ulta Beauty. It's been the honor of my career and I'll be the executive chair for another year. So it's not like I'm out, out of the picture yet and I love it, but I've been a public company CEO for 11 years now, eight years at Ulta Beauty and three years before that at US Cellular. So I've had a great run. I've got an amazing team. I mean, to me, the business is it's the right time for the business. Coming out of the pandemic, I think we're set up really well. Um, the leadership team, Dave Kimball is ready to be the CEO. He and I have worked together three times in our careers, handpicked by me. And uh, and then and he's ready. Keisha Steelman, so ready to be the chief operating officer. So the, the rest of the leadership team is world class. So I think from a business time, we're right. From a leadership perspective, we're right. And for me personally, like, you know, I'm turning 60 next month and, uh, you know, that's a milestone. I've got four adult children all over the country. My husband's been home raising our kids for many, for like over 30 some years. And I think for me, it's just time to kind of just take a step back and take a little stock and, you know, what I want to do next. I'm not uh, hanging out the shingle altogether or bringing in the shingle, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to stay involved. I'm on the boards of Starbucks and KKR, uh, Economic Club, you know, so there's a lot of really cool things. Save the children that I'm involved in and I'll have even more time to spend with. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of your leadership and your inspiration to emerging leaders everywhere for challenging us on where we look for new talent and ideas, right? That innovation and talent comes from all sorts of places. Open your aperture. And for all of your commitment to all things related to diversity, equity, inclusion, caring about your people and your commitment to civic life. I know that you are on a lot of boards and thank you for all of your service. You may be retiring, but I know it's not goodbye. So I won't say goodbye to you and I'm sure I'll see you again, but I know everyone's really excited to continue to watch. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Margaret. It was really fun. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.